When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Dana Mack about her debut novel, All Things That Deserve to Perish, set in late 19th century Germany. It's hardly news that World War II has been and remains a marketing juggernaut, in both nonfiction and fiction. But the philosophy that drove Adolf Hitler to embrace the final solution can be traced back to at least the late 19th century, when anti-Semitism intertwined with a series of social, economic, and cultural changes to create a toxic brew. This is the subject of Dana Mack's novel, although that's not obvious at first glance. The first thing I must do today, the first thing I really must do, Elizabeth von Schwabacher thought, as she coaxed herself from a state of sleep to semi-consciousness, absently tugging at the neck of her nightgown is to go over that place again exactly as Maestro Lyschatysky would have insisted. I'll take it in triplet rhythm rather than in duplets, and then in dotted rhythms, and then all six notes together, stopping after each group of six, then lifting my hands to root myself in the next group. Or else, she thought, opening her eyes just enough to see the shape of her bedstead, I'll never properly get it. Because the piece goes like the wind, and yet all those notes have to be present, and just under the surface of the melody. These things were rather like waging war, Maestro Lyschatysky had always said, not less worthy of meticulous preparation than a military campaign. Every artist, a soldier, embarked on a sacred quest, one doomed, of course, from the very onset. But if clever and skillful and well-prepared, one could delay for as long as possible the inevitable. And what was the inevitable? Elizabeth had once plucked up the courage to ask the maestro during her piano lesson. Falling on one sword, he had answered, we are all just helpless sacrifices to the gods of the muse. And then he had guffawed. She could hear him now, hear the tone of his bass and his hearty guffaw, which as often as not tended to settle on an A-flat. And now, please join me in welcoming Dana Mack. Hi, Dana. I look forward to talking with you today. Hello. Your interest in East Central European history uh, gives you a distinct perspective on the subject of this novel. Tell us a bit about what drew you to that area of study. I have to say that if I tell you it's going to be going back into my checkered past, because I have about seven past careers. But at any rate, um, I started out actually studying to be a concert pianist. Uh, I've, I've started piano study at the age of five, and I come from a very musical family. And I think it was pretty much expected that I was going to have a concert career. Uh, The only problem was that I 
didn't really have the talent and I also didn't have the fortitude. So I kind of gave up halfway through my college career and I started taking classes and other things. And what ended up happening was that I developed this avid interest in history and especially the history of Eastern Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, because I really love to play the German and Austrian composers. I love the classics and uh, and I just, uh, I especially loved the leader repertoire. I started working with singers and that led me to opera and that led me to German opera and Wagner. And this was sort of this, this, I don't know, the, 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 it just get, kind of got rolling. And, um, when I realized I didn't want to go to graduate school in music, I thought, well, maybe I'll go to graduate school in history and become a historian. And so the, uh, the idea was actually to pursue intellectual history, which um, uh, cultural history. And I thought that maybe uh, I could go to graduate school and um, talk about musical life, study musical life in Vienna and um, in, in particular. And that's kind of what got the ball rolling. You've written a couple of nonfiction books as well as a lot of nonfiction articles, but this is your first novel. What made you decide to shift to fiction? You know, as you get older, you start putting together a bucket list. And for a lot of people, that bucket list includes travel. For me, I had traveled a lot my li in, during my lifetime. And I just decided that I had uh, this, I had really... Um, developed this huge desire to try out something more creative with my writing. And I had several ideas for novels that I had kind of played with, but were so involved in writing nonfiction, uh, specifically music criticism. And then I uh, worked for a think tank and family and social policy for a long time. And, um, and I just decided that I had to allow that creative part of me some room to develop. And uh, as you get older, you get more, you have more time. We're empty nesters. And I thought, now I have the time to pursue a novel. And how did these separate threads combine to create the story that became All Things That Deserve to Perish? Well, when I was in graduate school, I ran across an article by the name of, uh, by a man um, who actually is still a professor emeritus at Washington and Lee University. His name is Lamar Cecil. And he wrote an article on Jews and Junkers in uh, Imperial Berlin at the end of the 19th century. And it was a fascinating, very short article about the contentious relationship between uh, successful Jews in Berlin at the end of the 19th century and the Prussian aristocracy. And for some reason, uh, there was a story that he told about the banker Bleichrede, uh, his, who had a daughter, Elsa. Um, he, the story is about um, Elsa's first court ball. And apparently she was a wallflower, not because she was unattractive, but because nobody wanted to dance with her because she was Jewish. And I 
for some reason, this story just stuck with me. And I thought, wouldn't that be a fascinating little kernel to develop into a short story or a work of fiction? And I played with the idea actually several times. Um, I wrote a short story and then I thought of writing a screenplay. Um, and these projects all fell by the wayside. Um, and um, then when I decided to take up fiction again, I thought, well, this would be the thing that would really be fun to do is to take that kernel of an idea and to develop it into a fictional work, a novel. And um, I could also kind of unleash my, or I should say, satisfy my desire for some some research into everyday life in late 19th century Germany, because I really love the research aspect of history. And having worked at a think tank for many, many years on contemporary issues, that aspect of historical research was something that I had really missed. Also, I have to say that there's so many many opportunities for historical research on the internet, I was able to look into things that I would have never been able to do 20 or 30 years ago when I first had the idea of writing a novel like this. So let's keep on and get to your main character, uh, who is Elisabeth von Schwabacher. And uh, she's the first character we meet. And we learn right away that she's a pianist. So what else do we need to know about her, especially early in the novel? Well, what I do reveal about her early in the novel is that she is a very protected young girl. She's um, inexperienced socially, a little awkward socially, and she is a, a, quite an intellect. Um, she's a very cerebral young girl, and she loves music, and she's quite talented. Um, and so she's, I guess, what you would call a precocious in the intellectual and artistic ways, but very naive socially. Um, in a way, she's determined, that is, she's determined that what she doesn't want at this time in her life, even though the novel opens when she's 21 and, of course, of marriageable age, especially uh for the late 19th century standard, she's, she's almost beyond marriageable age at 21. She um, doesn't really want to give her independence up. Um, but on the other hand, she's not quite sure what she wants. And um, in the beginning of the novel, when we meet her, we think that she has a lot of self-confidence about her artistic uh, talent, but as the novel carries on, we learn that she's not so secure about her artistic gifts as she appears at the beginning of the novel, and she starts to doubt those gifts, and she also starts to doubt her fortitude in the in in terms of really going on the concert stage. She doesn't really know that she has the confidence to do that. Um, and partly, I mean, we can spend a lot of time talking about uh, this sort of psychological 
um, conflicts that this character undergoes. But I would say the principal one is that she feels an enormous responsibility to the music that she's playing. And she wants to bring something new to it and something individual to it. And she's not quite sure that she can do that. So she's really a, a part of, I think an important part of her character um, has to do with her artistic aspirations. She's really an artist who is not quite sure that she can meet her own aspirations. She's also in the middle of a sort of small culture conflict. She's just returned from Vienna uh, to Berlin. And talk a bit about that, the family that was hosting her in Vienna, what she was doing there, and then what she meets when she comes back to Berlin to her own family. Well, her family in Vienna is middle class, and she is essentially upper class in terms of her the financial status of her parents. Her father is a very, very successful banker, but she sent to her mother's brother to study um, to, uh, to study in Vienna. She lives with her mother's brother and studies with the very great pianist and pedagogue. Uh, Theodore Leschetizky. And uh, when she's living in Vienna, she's essentially living the student life with in her aunt and uncle's home with her cousins, all of whom are medical students, uh, and including her cousin, Clara, who is a woman, obviously a woman. Um, and uh, the the atmosphere in that house is one of sort of friendly chaos. Uh, first of all, uh, they live in a in a kind of crowded, it's a big family living in a crowded Vienna apartment. Um, she's sleeping in the same bed as her cousin Clara. Um, and but there's lots of good conversation, lots of good food, um, lots of lots of 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 you know the Vienna have this. The Viennese have this uh, tradition of yauza where they get together in the afternoon and they have coffee with whipped cream and cakes and and so on and so forth. So she's really enjoying the food aspect of her of family in Vienna. And uh, she has a tendency to wait. So she gains a lot of weight. And when she goes home as a sort of finished artist, she finishes her studies with Theodor Leschetizky, and uh, she goes back to Berlin, and she finds herself again in her parents' mansion, essentially, a big villa in a suburb of Berlin, and she finds, her, finds herself, she's an only child, so she's lonely, and her mother puts her on a strict diet because her mother doesn't like the way she looks. And the diet is really a punishing diet. For example, for breakfast, she gets some uh, beef broth, a few almonds, and a hard-boiled egg. And she gets no lunch. And dinner is similarly um, skimpy. And because her mother puts her on a, on a, basically a crash diet to lose weight. And so, of course, she resents that, although she very much loves her parents. And her parents are quite devoted to her. Um, they essentially give her, they're very giving people. They've, they've provided a wonderful private education for her because uh, in those days, uh, German girls did not go to university. 
So, um, but she has been provided a wonderful education and her parents really value her and value her intellect, value her contributions, um, uh, value her personality. She has a wonderful, actually very ebullient personality, a good sense of humor and so on. So she's very appreciated by her parents and she appreciates her parents. But this punishing diet, which her mother puts her on because her mother is, um, you know, is a, it, I, one might describe her as a loving but vain and a little bit superficial person. Um, so that that diet she really resents, and she also resents the fact that she doesn't have the kind of intellectual companionship that she did as a piano student in Vienna and living in her uncle and aunt's house, which was a very lively, intellectually stimulating environment. I had expected from the book description that what her parents wanted most for her was simply for her to get married and have children. But that's not exactly what they want for her. They're actually much more flexible in their um, expectations of her than, than just to see her married. I, I, I want to say that she has a very different relationship with her father than she does with her mother. Her mother is a more conventional person. Her mother wants to see her, especially as an only child. Her mother wants to see her married, um, having a children and a family life. Um, her father uh, is a little bit ambivalent about the idea that she's getting married. Her father really admires her and wants her company treasures her company and there's a part of him as the book develops that is really fighting against the idea of her leaving home and getting married and one has the feeling that his wife does not quite satisfy him intellectually but this child does and i have to kind of back up here and talk about the um the uh, the ambitions of Jews in Berlin. I have to say that the Jews were really imp an important part of the intellectual class. And even those Jews who pursued business and banking careers were first and foremost intellects. All of these people had very rich artistic and intellectual lives. Um, Many of them were very, very fine amateur musicians. They had large libraries. And so uh, uh, in the book does Lizzie's father. Uh, you know, he has a library with many thousands of volumes. Um, and so these were people who really had very rich intellectual lives. And yet they were very lonely because... Um, first of all, they were ambivalent about the fact that they were Jewish. Many of them converted, but they weren't necessarily accepted by the Gentiles as Christians, um, even though they converted to Christianity. In the case of Lizzie's father, um, he adamantly is against, you know, conversion. He He's proud that he's Jewish, but he's a lonely man. He doesn't have a lot of friends. Um, he has really very few people um, that are uh, uh, that that have his social and financial status um, in in Berlin that he can socialize with, and um, 
And he knows that the Gentile community, the aristocrats, for example, um, really don't uh, want to socialize with him, socialize only reluctantly with him. So that makes the friendships very, very difficult to develop. And I think a lot of these people were, um, were a, a, a lot of these very high achieving Jews were very lonely and very aware of uh, persistent anti and even growing anti-Semitism. And many of them insisted that their children marry out of faith because they feared that these children would experience uh, crippling anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism that would cripple their own development and um, their own uh, opportunities. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. That really gets us to the conflict that is at the heart of the novel. And we can see it played out in this novel, uh, early in the novel, where um, Lizzie's father, Magnus, takes a trip to Pomerania, which for those who don't know, is was then Eastern Germany, the lands beyond the Elbe, um, to visit a Count Helmut von Berning and his son, Wilhelm. What's the purpose of this visit, and what do we need to know about the Burning family in general? Well, the Burning family in general is impecunious. Uh, the Burning family has lived in the same. Uh, uh, they've they've had an estate um, in Pomerania called Pulov, um, where they have lived for the last seven hundred years, essentially. And um, that estate is in danger of being um, taken from them, of being foreclosed. Um, and uh, they have, uh, so, so they, they basically need a, a, an infusion of money in, <laughs> in order to keep the family estate. And uh, so uh, Helmut, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, Wilhelm von Böning has a friend um, and um, Henning um, von Erlingen, who brings uh, Magnus von Schwabacher to Pulov to talk to him about a loan. Um, Magnus, of course, is an investment banker, and he's not a man who deals with mortgages. Um, but uh, because of this connection uh, between Magnus and Henning, um, they're chamber music partners. Um, essentially, they play chamber music together. And Henning is a—he's a good guy, you know. He's a, a man without prejudice, so to speak. And um, and then and he in turn has a very uh, close friendship with um, Wilhelm von Böning. So Henning um, becomes the catalyst for this meeting between Magnus and the Burning Man, um, th that is Wilhelm von Burning and his father, Helmut. And so they, uh, Henning and uh, Magnus go out to Pulov and um, 
Magnus takes a look at the estate and basically he offers them the opportunity at a low interest rate of of essentially saving the estate from foreclosure. And how would you describe Wilhelm as a personality? What does he want from life? Well, he's kind of an interesting personality. Um, You know, um, he kind of embodies all of the virtues um, and all of the vices of the Juncker class. You know, he's uh, he's a man who is uh, he's uh, he lives modestly um, because these people were very frugal. They did not have fancy houses and so on and so forth. They were very tied to agricultural life. They lived on their estate. Um, uh, And um, uh, and he's but he's also a man who has a bit of an artistic bent and he has enough intellect and enough, um, I should say, um, uh, interest in life, you know, enough liveliness that he, he, he is not interested in just marrying some, he's, of course, we haven't mentioned that he's a count, he's, an, he's a Prussian aristocrat. Um, and um, so, and he doesn't just want to marry somebody from some German girl from an aristocratic family who, who, whose only thoughts are, are children, church, and the kitchen, you know, Kinderküche, <laughs> uh, Kirche, which is the, um, the sort of uh, the interest, uh, the, 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 those were the principal interests of most German women and especially um, of aristocratic German women. He, he, he's, he is somebody who is very interested in the visual arts. He's kind of a, an amateur painter and he also does uh, art restoration in his spare time and so on. So he's a person who has ambitions a little bit outside of his uh, class, but he is, um, Somebody who has, you know, he's on the straight and narrow, soldierly. Um, he, you know, he's he's very Prussian in that in that respect. Um, uh, very much the uh, the uh, uh, nobleman with an estate who feels a responsibility to all of the uh, the workers uh, on his estate, um, to his servants. He. Um, intensely feels his response, his feudal responsibilities, because the Junkers were still, we, we have to remember that um, serfdom actually was only abolished um, in uh, East Prussia in uh, the early 19th century. And so um, the peasants, uh, even though they weren't serfs anymore, they still felt these very um, acute feudal ties with their masters. And and the Junkers were still, in psychologically, they were still feudal masters. And they had, a, and, 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 you know, unquestioned loyalty to king and country, um, to military service, et cetera, et cetera. So he sort of embodies all of these, uh, all of these traits of the Junker class, but he's also a guy who wants something a little different in a wife. So we can see what uh, draws him to Lizzie because she is beautiful and talented and rich, which, 
<laughs> and she's principally rich, yes. <laughs> yes, uh, but she's also, you know, effusive and and um, charming. Uh, what draws Lisi to him? Well, I just want to say something about um, about his attraction to Lisi before I talk about Lisi's attraction to him. Um, I really think that um, you know, uh, if Lisi had been poor, he would have wanted to have an affair with her. But uh, the fact that she's rich just makes it so attractive for him to marry her because, you know, he really, uh, you know, from the beginning of his meeting her, um, he uh, absolutely has a desire to sleep with her. Um, and, you know, so the the combination of the sexual attraction, the intellectual attraction and the money is just. Uh, really, for him, that 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 that's that's sort of uh, the measure of him, his ambition. In fact, because he he thinks all my problems are going to be solved at once. I need to get married, <laughs> and I need money. So this is pretty good. This is a pretty good deal. Um, where her attraction to him is concerned, it's a little bit more complicated. I think she's actually not even he finds her pretty, but, um, you know, she's not perhaps objectively pretty, um, especially by German standards of the day. Um, And so, you know, she does sort of look Jewish. Um, She is uh, she's petite um, uh, in terms of her height. and uh, and so she doesn't have the sort of tall, uh, sort of Nordic uh, ideal German features at all. And um, so that aspect of her, um, you know, she she has she's not secure about her looks. And the fact that he is attracted to her and of course, he's very handsome and he's sort of you know, the, 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 the blonde German Adonis type. I think that that really flatters her and she's very interested in him, but not as a husband. She's interested in him, in him as a lover. And she thinks that um, she's going to uh, essentially liberate herself from her mother's ambitions of marriage, which she's not interested in at at the time, she thinks she's going to liberate herself from that by having an affair with him. And uh, so so that she can walk away from the entire idea of marriage. Of course, it doesn't end up working that way. Um, the whole thing backfires on her. Um, but uh, But her plan is not to marry him while his plan is to marry her. So we should probably leave it there so that we don't give away any more of the story. But uh, so let's talk a little bit about the way in which the story is told. It's not an epistolary novel in the classic sense, because there is a lot of dialogue and, you know, uh, interior monologue and all of that kind of thing. But there are also a lot of exchanges of letters between the various characters. And I was curious about that and what draws you to that mode of telling a story. In this particular novel, there are historical figures, actual historical figures that come into the novel, and then there are the fictional uh, characters in the novel. And when I was 
essentially planning the novel, I started writing letters from the perspective of the fictional characters. The reason that I did that was that I wanted not only to get into the mentality of the characters that I was creating, but I wanted to find some authenticity in their historical experience. You know, as a historian, you learn to deal with primary sources, that primary sources are the stock in trade, uh, writing history. You need those sources. They are the most authentic things that you can possibly come across. Um, not having primary sources and being a historian, the only way that I could think of conceiving of these characters was to create primary sources. <laughs> Even though the primary sources were fake, they were letters of, you know, of, from my imagination. I just thought if I could somehow create a set of primary sources or primary source like materials that I could refer to, then I could write a narrative novel. What eventually happened was I created all of these letters and I kind of, I, I know it's going to sound strange and I hope that that your listeners don't think that it sounds conceited, but I actually fell in love with my letters. I just thought, these letters are good. I want to incorporate these letters into the novel. And um, also, uh, you know, I read, uh, I have to say that um, one of my favorite German writers of the period of the late 19th century is, of course, Theodore Fontana. And he was a wonderful novelist. Um, and he incorporated a lot of letter writing in, uh, uh, in his novels. And I thought, wait a minute, this is so appropriate to the period. And I, I really kind of wanted to literally reference the period I was writing about. And I thought, I'm just going to take many of these letters, and I'm going to just incorporate them into the novel. And that's how the novel became a partially epistolary novel. Now, the thing that's wonderful about letters is that they move the plot along so fantastically, you know. I mean, uh, so you really get, they provide insight into the character, um, and they move the plot along effortlessly. So, um, you know, I, I felt like, wait a minute, this is, this is a fantastic literary tool um, that I can actually use to move the novel along and to sort of capture the reader and um, give the reader a real glimpse into the inner workings of my characters' minds. What would you like people to take away from all things that deserve to perish? On the surface, it's 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 a love story. Uh, she falls in love with a man whom she has really no uh, intent to marry, um, but she lands in 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 a in a mixed marriage, and so that presents its difficulties. Um, so you know, on the on that level, it's really a story about a woman who falls in love. So I think everybody can kind of relate to that. Um, and she has to choose between her career ambitions and um, her situation as a, as a wife and mother. And I think that this is a situation that um, many readers can relate to, especially female readers. 
On another level, it's really about the failure of Jewish assimilation in Germany at the end of the 19th century. And it really presages because it's about um, uh, there are many events in the novel that um, uh, are uh, that sort of recount the rise of anti-Semitism. The novel presages uh, the Holocaust. And um, so in many ways, I have tried to sort of explain to the reader through the actions of my characters and their situations how Hitler could happen. Um, And not only how Hitler could happen, but how the German people could fall into this sort of maniacal, genocidal, you know, um, uh, activity. You know, some people who read the novel are a little bit shocked about uh, the fact that my characters, my non-Jewish characters, say very cruel things about Jews, you know, things that if somebody said today, uh, you know, they would be immediately, you know, censored. Um, you know, they, they, they're very objectionable things, but my characters say them because those things were actually said at the time and people said them with impunity. They said them, you know, they weren't ashamed to say them, you know. Uh, what I noticed most actually was the almost casual um, marking of people. I, I, I don't think there are more than two or three times in the entire novel where a German refers to Lizzie or her family without adding that they're Jewish. You know, it's like it's an right, exactly. essential part of their identity in the eyes of these other people. And yet, you know, they, they don't refer to her as the pianist or um, the beauty or even, you know, the banker's daughter. She is the Jew. Or the Jewess, actually, which sounds even more jarring to a twentieth century, twenty-first century ear. Uh, the uh, the original title of the novel, actually, I changed the title, but the original working title was the Jewess, because um, when I was writing um, uh, uh, the when when I when I first started writing the book, it just occurred to me how how often. The term when I was researching how often Jewish Jewish women were referred to as Jewess, okay, and Juden, um, and um, if you in German if you refer to a Christian, um, it's the same word if it's a woman or a man. But in um, German, if you're referring to Jewish people, um, you referred to in the 19th century you referred to a Jew or a Jewess. Okay, and the, it's it's a really very interesting because um, and you use the word marking. It is a mark. It is because um, there's something particularly exotic about the Jewish women. And by the way, it is not just a negative exoticism. It is a positive exoticism. Well, thank you for explaining that. Uh, let tell us a bit about yourself. Are you going to write another novel? Um, I'm working on the sequel. <laughs> so another novel novel is forthcoming and um and I'm having um uh, a really good time working on it. Um so uh the novel um ends uh in I I believe it's now I'm trying to remember. I, I guess it's 1890 
eight, the novel ends. And so I'm, I'm following the family then um, into the 20th century. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Dana. Well, thank you so much, Carolyn. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Dana Mack about all things that deserve to perish. Find out more about her at www.danamack.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.